The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, insights, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Hello, and welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today, we have no choice but to talk about guns. In the past two weeks, we've had the worst mass shooting of school children since the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, and too many other mass shootings to count. We're now averaging more than one mass shooting every single day in the United States of America. There were 14 mass shootings over the Memorial Day weekend alone, one of which was committed by the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club, who shot six riders from a rival club on the US 95 freeway less than a mile from where I used to live in Henderson, Nevada. Folks, the United States of America has turned into a full-on war zone. You can be shot anytime, anywhere, at school, at church, in the hospital, at the grocery store. There's literally nowhere to hide. And the worst part, it's virtually guaranteed that nothing will change. Your life and the lives of your children are now in the hands of the most violent armed sociopath in your town or neighborhood. We're forced to acknowledge that this state of affairs is by design. If it weren't intentional, then things would have changed for the better since Sandy Hook. Instead, our lack of action has made things dramatically worse. For the first time ever in 2022, gun violence has become the leading cause of death for children and teens, surpassing automobiles. So, we're gonna talk today about gun violence and the Second Amendment in detail. And by the way, trigger warning, we will be talking about suicide and self-harm. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon page, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles regularly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. The Radical Secular Podcast is brought to you by Cannibal & Co., located in downtown Jersey City and at shopcannibal.com. Cannibal, that's Cannibal with a K, stocks a rotating collection of goods ranging from apparel and accessories to home furnishings and fine jewelry. Cannibal weaves together its forward-thinking vision with its traditional roots to provide an expertly curated experience of unique and locally sourced finds. We're grateful to Cannibal for sponsoring our show. Okay, Joe, uh, let's look at our t-shirts. What are you wearing today? Well, in some ways, um, there, there are many facets to this issue of, of gun violence, but one of them is the denial of science. I mean, just, and yes. I have this t-shirt on because science, you know, and a lot of this is about uh, just blatantly not wanting to look at the real situation, the the data, the evidence, the, the what everyone else is doing in the world, you know, And we're going to talk directly about that, I think, later on, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Science denial is a huge thing. I get into it constantly. And it comes from even a lot of people who are credentialed scientists will deny studies about things that are outside of their area of expertise. And it's just like it's it's just a, a growing epidemic problem of science denial. And and this the issue that we're going to talk about today of gun violence is no exception. Um. I'm wearing my shirt today says, fuck Nazis. And the reason I'm wearing this shirt today is because always a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's evergreen because we seem to be becoming more and more of a Nazi country. And 
what, what, what could be the possible definition more of a Nazi country where we won't protect our school children, but we protect the cops who didn't protect them? I mean, right now, this, this, after this latest mass shooting, yeah. it turns out these cops are just, they're fucking cowards. They're cowards. And yet everybody's closing ranks. There's all this like, you know, infighting and you know, nobody can get their story straight. The politicians won't hold them accountable. Nobody's been fired. Nothing. It's just, you know, and that's, that, that's the state of affairs that, uh, I'm just, and, and, you know, the, look, what could be a greater definition of a Nazi than somebody who, you know, who, who releases a manifesto, um, about, <laughs> whatever group, whatever minority group they don't like, and then goes in and, and, and shoots a bunch of them. And that's what happened in Buffalo. So it's just, this is an ongoing problem. We are seeing the rise of brown shirts. Uh, these, these people with their guns are the brown shirts. And that's, that's what's going on in our country. We, and, and we're, we're, we're powerless to stop it. So, I mean, I don't know, like how yeah. it's, it's everything we're talking about is just a, a hopeless and sort of mind numbing cliche and, and nothing ever changes. And, and you know, we're going to talk well, about all those cliches. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, that's the problem that so much of it is cliche. So people don't like, it just, it just goes right over. They don't want to hear it. Like even the word Nazi, you know, it's been so used and, and, you know, part of our culture in such a way that people, it doesn't even register. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, but, I mean it's become a joke. You know, so and so is a you know the soup Nazi or or whatever. If somebody's a right. Nazi about something just means they're kind of extreme or dogmatic about it, right? They don't. We we have lost the connection to the 20th century and what actually happened under Nazism and why that is such a powerful word that's now lost its power. Right. And basically, a quick definition of it is fascism with extreme racism. That's what Nazism is. Like it's it's a combination of the two. Well, and like fascism is itself is the same problem. That word has been diluted, you know, yeah. because everybody, everybody calls whatever, whoever they don't like a fascist. Right. And so right. it's just like, <laughs> and, and the word racism too, it's been contested and struck fought over and, and people don't want, you know, it, it's also very problematic in the same way. Yeah. So well, we got a lot, it, we got a, it's a big fight. It's a big challenge because we can't even deal with the la the language itself has been colonized. So, uh, I mean, Completely. Well, and our physical safety, our physical safety has been compromised. We don't know yeah. who's going to come home on any given day because of this stuff. So, um, well, I want to, I right. want to just sort of address, we have a lot, it's going to be a long show. Um, and we have a lot to talk about because I really only want to do this show on gun violence once. We only need to do it once because it's evergreen. We're good. This problem is going to be continuing in our country. We we've already seen, there's no political will to fix it. And so, but how did this happen? How did we reach critical mass uh, on mass shootings? Why is this happening now? You know, um, right. So we're going to try to answer all those questions. I wanted to point out a, a resource that everybody can use, which is a sort of COVID death tracker for gun violence with individual incident reports. And, and it, it lists every daily incident of gun violence categorized by type. And it's called gunviolencearchive.org. And I would suggest putting that in your, you know, favorites tab because what, what, what happens is you'll hear about a mass shooting or whatever, but, you, but this will link you directly to a news story about it. So you can figure out the details. And if it's, especially if it's close to you, like, you know, one just happened in, in Arizona, you know, like I said, one just happened near my old house and one just happened near where I live now. So it's just, it's everywhere. Um, yeah. so the numbers can be numbing. 
but the numbers are staggering. And the one that always gets to me is that more people have died in the U.S. from gun violence since 1968 than in all the wars America has fought since its founding. That current total of gun deaths in the past 54 years is over 1.5 million. And the number killed in all of our wars, including the Civil War, is just under 1.4 million. So very similar. Now, you know, a lot of people, including myself, have referred to our current climate of violence as a sort of second civil war. Uh, certainly in, in the terms of the sheer number of deaths, gun violence is on a par with our wars and also with all the pandemic deaths. You know, with COVID, we've had we're right about a million deaths of Americans since 2020. And if you add to that the 1918 flu pandemic with 675,000 deaths, you're right about the same scale. Wars, pandemics, and the modern gun violence since 1968 are really the big three causes of untimely deaths for Americans uh, other than natural causes, right? Um, like cancer and heart disease. Right, right. But each right, of these right. big three killed about 1.5 million people. I just want to know if you, you know, can react to those numbers. Yeah, Sean. I mean, it's quite distressing to realize just how much the cultural violence defines this nation. I mean, it took me a while to realize it, to be honest. We all deny it at a deep level because it's human to deny something like this. But once you break through that denial, I think what happens is that the inherent violence that exists in the nation comes to light. And then you have to deal with it. Uh, and the, this violence manifests throughout our laws and our politics, in our homes. You know that famous picture from the Vietnam War of that naked girl running for her life? Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. U.S. troops dropped like napalm bombs in her village. And how does a civilized society re resort to using incendiary munitions on villages to begin with? But that's not my point. My point is that millions of civilians died in that war, but you know what? That image helped end it. It broke through the denial of a war that had lasted a very long time. Yeah. So perhaps something to that effect will do the same for this issue. But that's kind of what we're trying to do here, right? Is try to break through the denial. And we won't ever make things better unless enough people face the problem. Yeah, well, we, we need to we need to really face it. And by uh, by facing it, that means to break down the numbers on an annual basis, what we're actually dealing with. I know that people kind of know this uh, already, that it's a lot, but we, we have to talk about specific numbers because that's the only way to understand this. Um, so in 2020, which is the like most recent year that we have good data, there were 45,222 gun deaths in that year. And um, this is something that the, that the gun nuts sort of always bring up is like, well, most of those are suicides. Well, it's true. 54% of them were suicides, and that's 24,292. And there's a reason for this. I mean, guns are a very easy and popular method for killing yourself. Uh, done properly, they're quick and painless for the user. You won't even hear the gunshot because your brain is gone before the sound even gets to you. So... Um, you know, a huge caveat with that, though, <laughs> a slight change in angle or a last minute flinch could leave you horribly disfigured, yeah. blind, deaf, paralyzed, but alive. And this happens, uh, you know, more than people think. And so gun suicide attempts are simply awful. They're, they only happen because the guns are available and nearby. Um, and if you succeed, you leave a huge and tragic mess for your loved ones. I mean, imagine finding somebody you loved like that. So if you're thinking about doing this, just don't. And I'm going to read the National Suicide Prevention Hotline here because um, it's been shown that suicidal ideation is triggered by even discussing it. So it's 800 
273-8255. Call that line if you need it before you do something that you can't take back. All right, so let's move on to homicides. Uh, 80% of them are committed with a gun. That's 43% of all gun deaths, which adds up to 19,384 murders in 2020. That's almost half the total. Um, this includes everything from domestic homicide to mass shootings. It's just a, a tragic and almost incomprehensible number. Um, the other 3% of gun deaths are accidental. 535 deaths in 2020 were accidents or the ones involving law enforcement, 611 deaths, and there were 400 gun deaths in 2020 with unknown circumstances. But wait, there's more. Um, we haven't discussed injuries because people think, oh, when yeah. you get shot, you die. No. Um, according to Every Town for Gun Safety, more than 200 people per day on average suffer non-fatal gunshot wounds. Now, a gunshot wound is is not just something that you recover from quickly. It's that's an additional seventy to eighty thousand Americans every year who sustain life changing injuries from firearms. You know they might be disabled for the rest of their life, or can't work, or 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 brain damaged. Right. So, um, by the way, let's talk about the number of mass shootings in twenty twenty because this is a big number too. Six hundred and fourteen incidents defined as when four or more people are shot in a single location. In those 614 incidents, there were 446 deaths and 2,515 injuries for a total of 2,961 victims of mass gun violence. Just, it's just too much. Yeah. And there's a whole other level of this too. More than 25% of children witness an act of violence in their homes in this country, either or in school or in a community every year. And more than 5% witness a shooting. That's a staggering number if you think about it. Sure it is. Time. Um, there is indeed a clear relationship between gun violence and mental health, <laughs> but it's not the one that Republicans talk about. So, yes, it's not just an issue of gun regulation, but also of well-being and uh, mental well-being. The impact on those who have been traumatized by such violence cannot be understated. As far as mentally ill people being responsible for killings, that's one of the biggest and lamest rationalizations out there. That, and that's saying a lot these days, honestly. If that were the case, the U.S. would be not would not be such an outlier in the world, right? There's mental illness everywhere. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of a comparison later, but. Well, yeah, and the thing about it is, is that the vast majority, like we're talking about, the high ninety percentage uh, percentile of mentally ill people are not violent. Their their biggest danger is yes. to themselves. They they are, they are just suffering. They're suffering with a with a, with a disease like anybody else, and they're not going to hurt anyone. So, um, <laughs> they actually have lower rates of crimes as a cohort. It's such a population. deflection. And it's, it, it's, yeah. it's also, you know, you think about, we're talking about Nazism. Okay. Look at, this is ableism. This is, this is the idea that somehow, uh, you know, mentally ill or physically disabled people are a threat to society and, and they should be killed. That's, that's what Nazis did. They, they killed disabled people. So, you know, this is just yeah. more of that drumbeat of, of trying to shift the blame for their policies onto the most vulnerable. Right. Right. And then it, it plays out in maybe not mass genocide, but it can play out to who you want in your neighborhood, uh, how you treat people, who you hire, you know, who you're friends with. So like that, that stigma is really powerful, you know, and we don't want to add to the stigma. And this is what that's, this is doing by saying it's really about mental illness. Well, and they're using it because, you know, we've become a lot more aware recently of people who are on the spectrum of autism and Asperger's and things like that. And so all of a sudden that gets conflated as being like a danger and that, that leads to, you know, more discrimination against, you know, people who yeah. are on the spectrum. And so it's just, it's just a, it's, this is a cancer. This is a mental cancer, these ideas. But, um, 
I also want to talk yeah. about, we, we've got a tremendous amount of gun violence as we've established, but we have not talked about how much all of this costs. We've talked about the, the sort of mental and emotional burden on children and on society in general, but there's a huge economic impact. And, and that's in terms of the, the obvious things you think about, like the loss of life itself. What's a human life worth? Uh, funerals, insurance payouts, medical costs related to injury. But there's also this ripping apart of the social fabric, which is much harder to quantify. And it has to do with the pain and suffering of the families of victims. You know, you can imagine the trail of just, you know, broken lives, divorces, uh, you know, fail, uh, just people, people, you know, can't can't hold a job. I mean, it just goes on and on. Right. And, right. and then you think about the cost to taxpayers for public services to deal with this stuff, right? Um, schools that experience mass shootings, they're often torn down completely because nobody wants to go back there because they feel haunted by the experience. Right. So these schools are torn down and rebuilt at a cost of, you know, tens of millions of dollars per school, for example, that's federal money. This is money coming out of your pocket and uh, businesses who, you know, where mass shootings occur are often sued for damages, such as in 2017 at that Las Vegas concert where the, the MGM hotel that where the gunman was, uh, they ended up paying shooting victims and their families a total of $800 million, $800 million, that's almost a billion dollars in just a payout. And, you know, they really didn't have any, when you think about it, it really wasn't their fault. Like anybody can bring any kind of shit up into their room and, and, you know, if it's guns, they can, right. they can commit a right. mass shooting. So it's like, how is it MGM's fault? They went after them because they didn't have anywhere else to go. Um, and the insurance companies obviously paid it, which is raises rates for everybody. Okay. Um, but you're probably not prepared for this actual total number, the cost per year of American gun violence. And it's 280 billion dollars every single year, 280 billion. Now we don't have time to break all that down, but you can read the study at everytownresearch.org. But we have to look at this is this cost burden can be said to be an externality of lax gun laws and widespread gun ownership. Because if you didn't have this problem, if you didn't have all these guns out there, um, the, the, this wouldn't be happening. So an externality is an economic term for a cost paid by everyone, whether they are a party to the transaction or not. And this comes out to be $860 per year for every American man, woman, and child. I call it the gun tax. And this adds up to $3,440 for a family of four for every American family. Now, this is not evenly distributed, okay? Because the costs are even higher for people who live in states with lax gun laws. And they're lower in states with stricter gun laws because there's fewer shootings there. Um $860 per person is the national average. And think of what we could collectively do for our nation if we didn't have to pay this. The entire NASA budget for the space program, all of the space program, is $24 billion per year. That's less than a tenth of the externalities of gun violence. So it just this beggars belief. Yeah, it really does. I mean, on a personal level, I have a friend uh, who was has extreme survival guilt from a mass shooting she had taken the day off asked a friend of hers to cover for her she was a receptionist at a, a business guy came in shot killed the receptionist first and then went on to kill four more people and she just happened not to be there because she had taken that day off and asked a friend who had died and i mean it threw her into a spin that lasted for years like mental health issues and i can only imagine Hook, i yeah, I mean, and this is happening just so much, you know, like you said. And then, you know, Sandy Hook really just did me in, honestly, Sean. I, it, 
erased the last vestiges of denial in my heart for, for one i mean i realized that the the violence was so real but and we have to face up to the violence i, I can't say that enough it's like very much like domestic violence you know how at first a woman may deny make excuses for a violent partner right mm-hmm. just deny that that you know oh he's a nice guy he's just has some problems whatever but the truth the truth is that america has a deep-seated violence problems that comes out of our history and we're going to talk about that a lot for sure in this show uh, there is a direct link between the genocide and the ethnic cleansing of native people and what's happening with gun violence today no holds barred there is a direct link between gun violence today and slavery and yes there is a direct link between american style capitalism and gun deaths and we have to face up to this america is a particularly violent place in the world that's just the way it is and we've got to own it yeah yeah well and and that is that is a true fact and i wanted to mention also what you said about domestic violence i mean it is it is well known among uh, therapists and domestic violence experts that whenever this occurs, it is uh, there's complicity, there's complicity with the abuser, and it's a, it's a whole system. It's not this is not victim blaming. This is not saying that the, that the abused family member is at fault. It's just that there is a system within the family of of living with the violence and of denying it and of not holding the person responsible because they're also dependent on that person. And so it, there two different survival instincts are put into conflict there. And right. that's a similar thing that's going on in our country right now. You know, we have, we, we have, we have this, this abusive party, right? But they're also Americans. And, you know, if we don't succeed together as a nation, we fail as a nation. And so it's just, it's very, very hard to root out an abuser or, or an abusive party. So let's pivot though from the statistics. And this kind of stuff as to why, um, why these, these incidents are happening. And this is where things start to get really controversial because these two camps, as I was mentioning in the country about mass shootings and gun policy are, are first those who believe that these events are individual incidents and should be treated and prevented through sort of individual responsibility, you know, just be a better person. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they really think is supposed to happen to prevent this, but somehow just individuals, say no, just say just, no, just say no, just be better. Just be a better person. Just don't be a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> um, versus those of us like you and me who believe that gun violence is a public health problem. And it's not worth talking to the individual responsibility folks because all you get is platitudes. They've, re- they've really got this wrong. And their answers are all incoherent deflections to, you know, cultural issues like how are kids being raised, um, wanting to restore prayer in schools or blaming TV or video game violence or music or teasing or bullying. Or I've even heard people talk about poor diet as an issue. It's like, well, you know, maybe they're living in a food desert. I don't know. Um, I've heard it all. Trust me. And we can go through some of those arguments a bit later uh, to really dissect why they're not true. But suffice it to say, there are plenty of other countries all over the world who have very similar cultures and they don't have this problem, including Canada, which is right next door. Couldn't be more right. like America in terms of its, its you know, ethnic and, and demographic makeup. It's almost identical and yet totally different culture, right? So we have to look deeper or maybe just look at what's in plain sight, the widespread proliferation of guns themselves and the lax gun policy that allows almost anyone to buy almost any weapon anytime and carry it around with them wherever they want. 
So what are we dealing with? We're dealing with more than 120 firearms per 100 people in 2017 for a total of almost 400 million that year. And in the past five years, Americans have bought tens of millions more guns, nearly 20 million just in 2021. So perhaps the total number now is about 450 million weapons in the hands of the civilian population. And every time there's a high profile mass shooting of any type, sales increase even more. So Joe, I want to give you the opportunity to present your findings on America's epidemic of gun violence from a public health standpoint. Okay, sure. Um, well, first of all, America has a bad rep in the world, more than most people realize. In the 90s, I lived in Canada for a number of years, made really good friends there. When I told them I was moving back to the States, some of them tried to talk me out of it, fearing for my safety. Um, so why is that? Where does this reputation come from? Is it justified? Clearly it is, right? So mm -hmm. in the world, you think about this, poverty, war, and instability matter most when it comes to gun violence. There are some war-torn war countries that do worse than the United States, like El Salvador with the drug cartels, Venezuela with its social societal collapse, it's enduring, uh, countries like that. The U.S. is in the top 10% of all countries in the world per capita deaths per 100,000. In absolute numbers, there's only one nation that does worse in the United States, and that's Brazil. Taking that into account, compared to developed nations, the U.S. is an extreme outlier. It's number one by a long shot. There's no one even comes close to second. And I don't want to get too deep into the statistical weeds here, but let's just look at some data on how the U.S. compares with an emphasis on other countries that have gun cultures and are relatively wealthy, like Canada, for example, Britain, New Zealand, Norway, countries like that. They all have a cultural gun ownership, but the difference is they all have tightened restrictions. And as a result, their violent statistics are far lower than those in the United States. There's no debating that. It's just there. Uh, the intentional murder rate for last year in the U.S. was 6.1 per 100,000. Across all of Europe, it's well under one. And, you know, J Japan, South Korea, all well under one. By the way, South Korea has like this crazy video game culture, super violent video games, <laughs> and they have one of the <laughs> lowest <laughs> gun violence rates in the world. Um, so how can we deny that's a problem? How can we not factor that in? But we, we do. We've denied it for far too long. Canada, like the U.S., is also known as a country where a lot of people own and like guns. But there are 35 guns per 100 people, not, as you pointed out, Sean, 120 per 100 people. That, you know, the closest country of all the countries in the world, 200 plus countries, is 53 out of 100, and that's Yemen. And then we're 120. Just way out yeah. there beyond anybody else. You know, if you look it at would France, make sense to me. It would make sense to me, okay, that like um, there's probably a nonlinearity. There's probably a tipping point at some number of guns per hundred people where you tip over into this mass, you know, just an explosion of mass violence. I don't think it's a linear relationship. Probably right. Yeah. I mean, France, Germany, they're 19 percent or 19 out of 100. Italy, 14 out of 100. Russia, 12 out of 100. Spain, 7 out of 100. We're 120 out of 100. It is indeed the guns, okay? Yeah, absolutely. It's the guns. Yeah. So, and another, another angle, in the U.S., gun-related deaths make up close to 80% of all homicides. It's 37% in Canada. It's well under 10% in most of Western Europe. So, even, where, even in gun culture countries. So, uh, where guns are regulated and curtailed, right, 
Um, there's a huge difference in the rates. Uh, and World War II in Europe really changed that, you know, those, those countries, those cultures tremendously. And they got smart about things like this. And hence, okay, even though a lot of those countries have gun, gun cultures, um, they are doing okay. But as bad as the comparison is for homicide, as you were mentioning earlier, Sean, it's even worse for suicides. Let's look at all the world here. In terms of gun-related suicides, out of the 200-plus nations, the U.S. is number two per capita. But guess what? Mm -hmm. You know who number one is? Greenland. <laughs> so we might as well make it Greenland. Like Greenland. Right? So it's like, there's like 12 people up there. So we might yeah. as well say, say the United States is the number one suicide per gun uh, using guns in the world out of all the countries yeah. of the world. Certainly out of the, all the advanced industrialized nations, right? Uh, that are, they're populous, right? It's number one of every single country in the world that keeps statistics. Everyone, right. poor, rich, right. doesn't matter in terms of suicide guns, but by gun. Mm -hmm. um, and so in relative and absolute numbers, the United States is number one in the world. Venezuela, which has a tremendous societal instability in the last several years, has a rate of 2.5 suicides by gun per 100K, and the U.S. is 7.12, almost mm -hmm. three, three to four times as much. So you have to ask why. Why is the U.S. so different? There are many potential reasons for it. A lot of nuance, a lot of complexity, but clearly it's the availability of guns that's the number one reason. It stands above the rest. Let's ask another question, though. Why are gun laws so different in the United States? And in my estimation, and yours, I think, it's the willful denial of our violent history. Again, I want to make this clear. It's not our violent history that's, that's the factor. It's the denial of it, the inability to, ha to have dealt with it. Right, uh, Europe has an ex has had extreme episodes of violence in its history. We know that, right? But it has owned up to them. The U.S. has not. Take Germany in particular. They have a set of laws and traditions today that address their violent past. Uh, in the U.S., we have mass hysteria about critical race theory. Right, the very oh. opposite of that. <laughs> we 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 actually they're trying to pass laws to make sure that we do not deal with our our violent past. Exactly. Right. It's it's <laughs> it's incredible. Um, we don't have sensible gun laws because we are in mass denial of a lot of things related to this issue. It is a denial that has allowed us in the U.S. to become such a gun pariah, pariah in the world. So the third question I could ask is, what is the shape and texture of this denial? And I think for that, we have to look back. The other thing that's which is simply astounding, Sean, is the appalling lack of gun violence research in this country. Uh, yeah, what's I mean, up with in, that? <laughs> in what other health issue or really any issue of public concern, is there literally a ban on studying and learning about that problem, right? It's insane. Fun, it's insane. It, It'd be like a ban on researching cancer or something, right? Right, <laughs> right. And so government-funded research is a key strategy today in the world for all modern societies. It is the, it is the bedrock in which all other research rests on, right? It's critically important. And yet, this is what's happened in the realm of gun violence in the U.S. The GOP, on behest of the NRA, placed a powerful institutional obstacle in the way of any research on guns about 25 years ago. So that's the Dickey Amendment. And so we can talk a little bit about that. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think it's important to, to just kind of 
bring it out there a little bit. So that well, yeah, effort, a lot of people don't know about it. <laughs> right. They don't. And they should. I mean, that GOP effort um, to, to quell research also reverberated in academia. And a few people chose to pursue careers studying that field because they knew there was no money. So if you're a young researcher, you're a sociologist, whatnot, you're going to shy away from that. If you're an institution, you're going to shy away from how encouraging your faculty to, to, to do that kind of research, even if the government's not involved. Because again, it's, it is a, uh, sort of a, sort of, uh, a systemic, thing like how research works it's not just individual researchers there's a network there's a community there's kind of an ecology that gets developed that this research then bounces around and help and reinforces it, itself so mm -hmm. a lot was lost not just the government funding right so generation well, they shamed it there's like we, we don't want to hear this you know we don't, it was almost like like sex research before kinsey or something like that right where it would like to even discuss it is now like it's yeah. just sort of a taboo against it that's a right? good comparison so essentially what happens a generation of science was lost on this issue and this has cost us very dearly um, the efforts to squash the research started with a CDC study in 1993 that concluded that having a gun in the home increased the chances of someone being a victim of homicide. That yeah, they got don't the want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. <laughs> that got the Republicans mobilized and they stopped. They tried to stop further research at that point. Uh, they tried to defund the CDC arm that was in charge of that, that, that research. And at that point, they failed. So they tried a different strategy. A few years later, uh, Representative Jay Dickey tried another tactic. He spearheaded a law that prevented our government from funding any research that could promote gun control. And since then, policymakers have been denied a key tool to use to protect the American public. Uh, Obama tried to fund some research back in 2012 after Sandy Hook, that massacre that killed 26 people, including 20 little children, six and seven year olds. Um, where all the conspiracy series came out about how that was a false flag event and all that. It was just horrible. It, yeah, imagine that. Imagine sickening, that. Sickening. The things that the, the extra damage you're doing to those families by doing that. And yet millions of people went along with that denial. Uh, after the Parkland uh, mass shooting in Florida, it was, new efforts were tried, um, failed again. Right? The amendment is still there today. The Dickey Amendment is still in, ac in action. It's still there. But in 2019, there was some success in introducing some research funding in, in this field. Uh, again, it will take a lot of time to overcome the dearth of researchers that now exists in this field and to redevelop a, a research infrastructure, right? Let me just sort of highlight a few things though. One project is developing a website to teach kids about gun safety. Uh, another is evaluating the effectiveness of bystander intervention in sports clubs. So the very detailed stuff. Another is looking at people and businesses store guns and how that has relationship with gun violence. Another one is looking at school shooting strategies discipline actions and so forth. But most of this research money is going to simply helping states provide real-time data again that's been lost. So to rebuild the research infrastructure. Uh, there are currently about 18 or so projects in the works. It's about $25 million in funding, which, you know what, Sean, that's a drop in the bucket. It's, it seems like a bucket. lot of money. It's nothing. The no. federal government, no. pro 
the federal government spends like forty billion dollars a year for cancer research, right? Uh, in terms of like right. criminal oriented stuff, four hundred and fifty million dollars a year for rural crime prevention, federal government does every year. Okay, right. and there's a whole bunch of other stuff like that. So for the first time after twenty after two decades plus, twenty five million dollars is is really nothing. Uh, but it's at least it's, it's a, a start. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So the first studies, by the way, from 2019 are, are about to be released about three months from now. Uh, and we'll see what happens with that. It's hard to say what the consequences have been because of this lack of research, but there's no doubt in my mind that they've been tremendous. That it's been uh, a slaughter uh, of public, uh, you know, trust in other ways. And Republicans justify this through their general distrust of science and academia. You know, you've heard it all. They claim it's liberal bias or some other conspiracy-minded foolishness like that. And, you know, John, what can you add here? I mean, you know a lot about this. Listen, I'm okay. I mean, it's just, I, I am so tired of this. And basically, <laughs> the way that things work in the Republican Party is, if you don't like some result, you just, you just challenge the science. Uh, you just declare it a hoax. You just you just say the opposite and think that's enough. I mean, this has been going on with climate. This has been going on with everything. And it doesn't matter what the research is. If you don't like it, you know, you deny it. And this happened with COVID. I mean, it is it is just their central strategy right sure now. They, they are hostile to science. They, they're hostile to science. They want to defund it. They want to politicize it. They want to uh, predetermine the outcome because guess what? Science is the one thing that's true, whether you believe in it or not. And so, you know, but what they've proven, what has been shown here, which is really has a lot to do with some of the things that were, you know, that were predicted, you know, about, about the, the, you know, the sort of takeover of the media and the created creation of these alternate realities. I mean, this is what Carl Rove said, you know, we're, we're going to create another reality while you're busy analyzing, you know, all the stuff that we said that you didn't like from before, we're going to go, go ahead and create these new realities, which you'll also be subject to. Yeah. And, you know, th this is, this is, um, it goes beyond the U S I mean, this is what Vladimir Putin is doing. This is, he's, he's created a whole other reality for what's going on in Ukraine. He's, he's slaughtering a nation. He's invaded a nation without pretext and his, his whole rationale is to paint them as Nazis. And so it's just, it's just flipping everything upside down. That's what they've done with gun violence research as well, because guess what? That, that finding from 1993, uh, that having a gun in the home makes you something like three or four times more likely to be shot than if you don't have one. Well, that makes guns seem like something you shouldn't have in your home and that's bad for business. So, you know, we can see it's just, this is just all money, money, money. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I mean, science is our eyes and ears to the world because we, you know, we're such a vast societies now, mass, millions of people, billions of people, super complexity. You know, to be able to have any warning or any kind of sense of how to make things better, the only thing that can really do it is science. You're not going to do it by anecdotal evidence. You're not going to do it by religion. You're not going to do it even by philosophy. It's really science is our eyes, our observation of what's happening and then the explanations as to why. And if you get rid of that, we're completely blind, right? Blind. Completely. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're driving a car, uh, you know, yeah, with, with a blindfold and that's not going to last very long. No matter your ideology, <laughs> we're blind. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I want to talk now about one of the best books I've read on the topic of American gun violence. It's called The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment by Tom Hartman. And it was published in 2019. And what this book shows 
is that firearms are inextricably bound up with the founding of our nation, and they've shaped everything about our national character ever since. It's a much bigger deal than you think. These aren't just, you know, metal objects that sit in people's homes and, and trucks and, you know, whatever. I mean, these, this is some, this is a, um, a part of our history that is so vast and fundamental. Uh, and when you think about the colonization of the American continent by Europeans and the whole genocide that was committed of tens of millions of Native Americans, it was all accomplished with guns. Um, slavery was enforced entirely with guns. I mean, why do you think slaves didn't run away? Why do you think, you know, uh, it's just, it's, this is incomprehensible. Okay. Um, the racist laws that formed the Jim Crow system were enforced with guns, uh, race massacres and lynchings and the terror campaigns of the Ku Klux Klan were all perpetrated or backed up with guns. And so, this also modern race and gender hierarchy in America with white men on top and everyone else on lower rungs of the ladder is also backed up with guns. And this is what we have to conclude the Second Amendment is really about. And we're going to drill down into this. OK, and, and, and this is not just a claim, you know, like a sort of a, a sort of scattershot claim. This really is what the Second Amendment is about was uh, was white male supremacy. I mean. And firearms are at the center of it all. So if, if you're wondering, this is why the conversation about gun regulation never goes anywhere with Republicans. It's absolutely existential. I, uh, I want to be clear about this. Some people may find the connection tenuous, but I'm definitely on firm ground. And if you read the Tom Hartman book, you'll understand why. Because for white men, it's not just the capacity to imagine that someday they might need to shoot someone in self-defense. That's the pretext, Okay. But it's a bullshit myth. And the gun is much, much, much more than a physical tool or a weapon. Uh, as an archetype, it's the key symbol of white male dominance. And now be careful here because that does not mean I'm <laughs> obviously other people than white men have and use guns. And all, all the gun nuts are going to be going, ha, 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 ha. he thinks that only white men have guns. <laughs> but it's not that. OK, it is what the history of it was. And how the laws are written and who they're for up to the present day. So there's a lot of detail about this that I could present here. Uh, and we won't be able to cover all that, but I will say one thing that might make you think twice about American history. And that is that until the ratification of the 14th amendment in 1868, only white men were covered as persons under the constitution. Okay. So for nearly a hundred years, the second amendment only protected the rights of white men to keep and bear arms. No one else was allowed to have firearms at that time. So just let that sink in for a minute. And how does this knowledge make you feel, Joe? Well, I mean, how does it make me feel? Well, like shit, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> What makes me feel worse is how so many others willfully obliterate, obliterate this history. Just tonight, even though you saying, Sean, that the Second Amendment was about slavery, immediately, I, I know the, the, the fumes go off in people, right? What the hell is he talking about? It's bullshit, right? But it's not, mm -hmm. you, can lo you can make a very coherent, co cogent, logical argument that that is indeed the case. And we can, I, we can go into details with that if anybody asks us. There's a lot more than we're going to say on this show. But, I mean, mm -hmm. and, and practically speaking, right, ostensibly, even the idea that, you know, guns are there to prevent a tyrannical government from taking over and whatnot. I mean, that's false. 
the only th- the only real incidence of that we can think of is a civil war, and that was fought with armies, right? Not militias. Uh, so, like, what is real is the enforcement of slavery. It's the genocide of indigenous people. It's all of the stuff we're going to be talking about here on the show. That's real, verifiable, evidentiary <laughs> stuff. Um, well, anyway. also, you you remember back when we did that episode about the weapons trade and um, the research that I did showed that the South, they set up shop in New York City and went shopping uh, with all the major arms manufacturers and, and armed up with heavy weapons before that war even started. So it wasn't about guns. Just yeah. like it's not now. I mean, it's like, <laughs> who is that that said that anybody who thinks they're going to overthrow the gov- government with guns doesn't understand how tanks work? Exactly. Or, or, or surveillance, all that stuff. But anyway, I mean, it's really yeah. about national myths. I mean, we do, this is how nations are formed. This is that we have, we live in the nation state world, right? And a big part of that is to develop institutions that bolster the state. So people buy into it and feel connected to it and build a national identity. And a huge part of that is, is national myths and history, right? And uh, we're only recently beginning to do like real historic history based on science, like scientific history, mm-hmm. where we're looking using evidence rather than myths to do history and so now people are like history is being rewritten because of that and people are saying oh you know it's revisionist is you know it's like bullshit it's like you know and 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 they want to go back to the myths right and this is this is what's happening here with guns as well like and the second amendment and the constitution people really are clinging to these natural these mythologies right um yeah and and, you know, not that everything about America is bad. There's, there were some really great things about our history, a lot of great things and so forth. But we have to also be willing to look at the underbelly, which is a big, huge, fat underbelly of America that's really destructive. And we have to, and we have to do that. We have to do that because it keeps this is the coming man. back. Yeah, this is the straw man, Joe. I mean, when you just even when you bring that up and have to say, well, America's not all bad. No, of course it isn't. And that's not what we're saying. And this is the, this is a straw man that constantly gets, you know, you hate America. You hate our right. freedoms. You hate, you know, you're, you're a communist, you know, all this kind of stuff like that. No, like <laughs> we are looking for an honest America, not a hagiography. Hey okay. And if you think, if you have that opinion, you probably don't even know what hagiography hey yeah. is. <laughs> like, you know, it's, there's such ignorance involved in all of this revisionist history. And, um, I, I just, I, I resent the fact that we even have to address those straw men, but I guess we do. And well, it goes back to the question I asked earlier, why is the United States such an outlier in the world with gun violence? And I think a big part of the the answer is we have to look at history. We have to look at our unique American history, right? And, and see what the patterns are, what the connections are. We have to be honest with that. If we want to move forward, if we want to solve problems, we've got to be sober and honest about things. You can't just make shit yeah. up. I know. And I really is do. It, it, yeah. Is it an Orwell quote who said something along the lines of he who controls the past controls the present and he who controls the present controls the future or something like that? I don't remember the exact quote, but it's yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And this this idea that you're talking about here, Joe, I think is really important because every one of these myths ties into a history of America that did not happen. Right. And by the way, the other country, like I mentioned, Brazil has a higher murder gun murder rate in the united states is also the country that gave up slavery last like in the 1880s right so like there's a connection there too um but yeah so, definitely 
Tom Hartman's book, I haven't read it yet. I've read parts, quotes, and so forth, but I'm, it's definitely on my reading list. But yeah, tell us more about that. Well, okay, so this is this is sort of to address the the, the this myth, you know, about about guns and how much they were um, a part of of you know, there's somehow like an American tradition in a, in a good way. Um, so Hartman says, quote. For much of American history, most guns were owned by slaveholders and frontiersmen. Urban Americans had little use for guns. Guns were tools. They were used to hunt animals for food, to keep slaves in line, and to force Native Americans to submit to American conquests. They were not symbols of manhood or cultural identity. The gun manufacturing industry wasn't yet selling guns on the mythology of the Minuteman. In the years following the Civil War, though, private gun ownership exploded. The explosion of guns in private hands was in part because of the rise of private rifle clubs and paramilitary groups like the Ku Klux Klan, and in part because of savvy, savvy marketing by Oliver Winchester, founder of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So, wow. I mean, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We've got, you know, we the, the KKK and the gun manufacturers have been, you know, this are, are really representative of the two strains of racism and profit that are that represent that are the entire gun problem. So we really need to understand what he's talking about uh, here is the whitewashing of the of the story of the European invasion of of North America cuz not only did Christopher Columbus not discover America, he didn't. <laughs> it was discovered much earlier. He was there to conquer it. He pursued a policy of systematic violence from the moment he landed. He used cannon against the peaceful, unarmed Taino on the island of Hispaniola in 1492. And by 1516, the native population of Hispaniola had been almost entirely slaughtered or enslaved, dropping from 300,000 to less than 12,000. Okay. Some estimates. In just about 20 years. Some estimates are more like 2 million to, to 12,000. But yeah, they look at your population densities and that kind of thing. You can get that kind of information from archaeology. Dead people tell no tales. Right. right? And, that's true. And so <laughs> this slaughter happened yeah. and you got the only way to try to figure out how many people it was is to go back and count the, the skulls. Right. Yeah. So even the 12,000 that were left over were eventually killed off by 1555. There was not a single native left alive on the island. So this war that started that way from the very beginning continued unabated across the entire continent of North America for hundreds of years. And we know that there's this myth of the settlers and of taming the wild frontier. And, you know, uh, it was North America was already fully occupied. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a virgin territory. It was fully occupied. And this whole thing was an invasion. When settlers built homes and towns, uh, they were on other people's land and they drove those people off the land and those people were not happy about it. So, you know, this was done 100 percent with firearms. Uh, there's also a religious component to the Native American genocide. As we know, dehumanization always accompanies mass killing and provocation. Okay. Like they'll say, Oh, you know, this whole idea that in the, the Indians are scalping people, right? No. I mean, they, they fought back. Okay. They fought back, uh, against invaders and that's what was going on there. And sure. Yeah. It was brutal. Like if you don't have guns and the enemy does and you catch the enemy, you're going to, you're going to commit atrocities against that enemy who's invading your land. It's just the way it goes. All right. Um, there was a concept of divine destiny, manifest destiny. Uh, Europeans considered Native Americans to be heathens, and they used this designation to make the killing morally acceptable. And, of course, the Christian church was was 
as always along for the ride. I mean, this was an explicitly Christian genocide and, and look into any genocide in the history of the world. And you'll find the similar blood libel and dehumanization. It was used against Jews as a pretext for the Holocaust and more subtle versions of the same dehumanization exist today with the strong American tradition of blaming victims of violence, whether it's poor Americans or black Americans or women, you'll always hear various versions of they deserved it. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. Um, I do want to say that you know, we, we can't forget that a lot of the deaths were from smallpox and other diseases as well. But everything you say, it's still 100% accurate because on top of that, that just made it easier, right? That just made it easier to colonize and to push out and to kill and, and commit genocide. But uh, a lot of it was from that as well, from from just diseases. Yeah. Well, you hear this. You yeah. hear this pushback. You hear this. This is a, this is a this is a major pushback. And of course, it was true. But Europeans brought the smallpox, so it's like they brought the smallpox and the guns. And whoever they didn't, whoever didn't get killed well, from the from the plague, you know, got killed from with uh, firearms. Well, then in some cases, they actually use biological warfare, like Lord Amherst, which Amherst uh, Mass is named after, purposefully gave blankets with smallpox to the to. Uh, the indigenous people in that area to, to eradicate them. There's actually a movement now to try to change the name of the town because of that. Uh, so it's like it, they probably it, should they use whatever means that they had available. Right. Uh, but the thing mm -hmm. is, all of what you said happened, like the with the guns, with the slaughter, with all of the, the brutality, that's all just as real. Just because a lot of people die from mm -hmm. smallpox, too, doesn't make it doesn't doesn't change that. That's what I want to be clear about that. And people will say, oh, it wasn't, you know, well, it was it was diseases, but it was a wholesale extermination. Right. I mean, you think about it does like like if you're using if you're deliberately using a plague and you're using firearms, I mean, it was just like by any means necessary eradicate this population. Yeah. People <laughs> think when people think of genocide, they think of the Nazi concentration camps. And certainly that's genocide to the extreme. But genocide, genocide happens at many levels, like you're saying, Sean, there's an, the actual eradication of people, you know, putting them in gas chambers, but there's also pushing people out, ethnic cleansing, there's herding them into concentration camps like reservations, right? There's also the wiping away of culture and identity purposefully, uh, like stealing their children, like that ha you know, happened, uh, you know, in the United States around the 1900 or so. Um, there is, uh, you know, when it comes to indigenous genocide, there's also, there's no place like the, um, like in the Americas quite like the United States, honestly. If you look at the result, well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, you, 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 you just mentioned stealing the children. And I, I think what you're referring to there is the establishment of all these Christian schools yes, where they took absolutely. and they, they, they kidnapped native children and brought them, forced them to be in these Christian schools. And if you go to those places, they're graveyards. Yeah. There are there, there. A lot of these children were just were just killed. They were mistreated. They were sexually abused. They were, they, you know, everything possible was done to them. And then they were buried on the school grounds. And you can go back to these places and dig them up and see the, the you know, the history of that, you know, of that part of the genocide. It didn't happen voluntarily. These children were forced away from their families. And it, I, I don't know what the numbers are. I think it's a few hundred thousand at least that are documented. I, I could be wrong about that. But it, it didn't happen that long ago. And it was ostensibly under the guises of helping them, right? Because they do, they wanted them to have the a superior culture and 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 unlearn their indigenous heritage. That's, that's genocide, right? 
Uh, and, and you know what the result and of that, Sean, is that uh, the Mexico, 20% of the population there self-describes as indigenous today. It's 44% in Guatemala, 48% in Bolivia. It's higher just about everywhere except for two countries, the United States and Brazil. And the United States is 1.5%. And in Brazil, it's less than 1%. Uh, that is genocide. When you rip away everything, everything from a people, their identity, their lives, um, their land, everything. And that's what happened. And this was systematic. Okay. It was done by government and private entities, by individuals. Uh, it was across centuries that this happened. Now, the other thing is slavery, right? Europe had made slavery illegal in the early part of the 19th century. For the most part, I think all countries by the 1820s and 30s, it was done. Uh, it was still going strong in the United States for decades more. And how much longer would slavery have lasted as a legal and cultural institution in this country, if not for the Civil War? Um, we have not adequately owned up to this past. And so we have these backlashes, right? We have Jim Crow. We have Ku Klux Klan. We have, uh, you know, Trumpism in a way. It's, it's another, it's just they keep coming back. They're revivals of yeah. hate and in turn violence and fear. And we could talk about also the nativist movements against immigrants, which were extreme. We could talk about the systematic atrocities associated with early unionization, the slaughters that happened there with guns, right, by private private militias, for, literally, or, you know, security forces of corporations, uh, by just the police kowtowing and doing exactly what the corporations wanted them to do. So the gun violence we see today is a legacy of that past. You cannot separate the two. The U.S. is a complex nation. Uh, we, we're the, old, the world's oldest active democracy. We have, the, we have these great traditions, right, like that. The feminist movement began here in this country and spread across the world. We have the civil rights movement. We have things to be proud of in this country. We have a lot of good things, but we also have this legacy of brutality and violence that keeps resurfacing because we're not dealing with it. Well, yeah. And one of the things that I think, you know, I, I'm just, I was just like bursting at the seams to say this during when you're talking about all that, because there's only one reason why there's only 1% or whatever of Americans who still identify as indigenous, because that identity, Christianity, Christianity tried to Christianize everyone. They tried to, to, to eradicate that culture because those people did not believe in the Christian God. And that is, that is the strain. And, and it's big in Brazil as well, by the way. Uh, the, the strain of, 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 of really like fascist power yeah. is just this strong, strong evangelical dominionist theocratic impulse that is not interested in preserving any other culture than this, this culture of, of, yeah, yeah. of, of Christ. And, and Christ, even even in and of itself, is a is a myth. Like the the what, what people think that Jesus stood for versus what you know, if there was someone who lived who by that name actually stood for, are two completely different things. Yeah. And what Christianity has come to stand for is this unaccountable power and genocide. And it, it, and it's you cannot discount the 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 incredible 
impact of Christianity. Well, the, the whole notion of missionization or evangelization, if I think about what that means, is you're, you literally, the, the ideology there is, I'm going to bring my superior culture and eradicate your inferior culture because it's not worthwhile, it's not worthy. We're going to change who you are, how you see yourself, who you identify with, who you worship, and everything else about you because you're inferior and we are superior and we're going to change you like us. Right. And absolutely. Re yeah. Missionization <laughs> really has done so much harm in the world. Honestly, I've seen it directly because I lived in indigenous communities, uh, but you can't understate that. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's just almost too much to bear when you read this history, the real history of the colonization of the United States and the subjugation of its native peoples. If you're superior, it'll be obvious. You don't have to eradicate what you can, the inferior cultures because they're inferior, right? I mean, so the, all of this stuff, is a, it's a pretext because you're afraid that you have a brittle culture and it's not superior. And, uh, you know, that these, these native people might have something uh, valuable that you have to destroy because otherwise people might see it as valuable. And um, Hartman talks about all this in his book, but only tangentially to kind of explain how the Second Amendment came into being. The real straight dope on this can be found in Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. And I've got to confess that that, you know, it, it's been now 10 years or so since I read that book and it was very difficult for me to finish. And it's so sad. It's going to shatter your illusions of what yeah. it means to be an American. I, no I doubt. I read it like um, 30 years ago. I should reread it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. tough. You know, it's tough, bitter medicine. But the worst part though is that when you try to discuss any of this, it brings up such guilt and denial and uh, uh, among modern Americans that you're going to almost always find yourself attacked for it. Sure. I mean, you, you just can't. There's, there's, that which can't be spoken of, right? We, we, we can't maintain this American mythology that we believe about ourselves once we learn, learn the truth. And, you know, the truth here is that the Second Amendment language about a well-regulated militia has its origin in slave patrols. Uh, before the U.S. Constitution was even written, states such as Georgia had passed laws in the 1750s, which required plantation owners and their employees to form militias. This wasn't optional. This was required to perform monthly armed inspections of all housing for enslaved persons to search for and confiscate any weapons. So the whole genesis of the Second Amendment was to arm white men and disarm black enslaved people to keep them from mounting any armed resistance. Um, slave patrol laws were also on the books in many other states, including Virginia and the Carolinas, and they eventually became universal because there were hundreds of uprisings of enslaved people during that era. And so most Southern men between the ages of 18 and 45, those of whom who weren't like professionals in critical professions, were conscripted at some point to participate in these armed patrols to put down slave uprisings. So if you were black and enslaved, though, this was nothing short of a reign of terror, right? I mean, the entire economy of this newly forming nation of the United States depended on the enforcement. And it wasn't just the South, although it was mostly the South <laughs> who did I, this. I just want to just quickly add here that how do we know this? Like I was talking about the, the shift in history that happened in the 1960, late 60s and 70s and onward is original documents, right? They're original documents that show all the stuff that illustrate it and this is how history is done now we look at we we go to the evidence and the evidence is right there the original documents before weren't even looked at they weren't even thought of they were just they had they had been buried somewhere in some boxes uh but they came out and we've relearned our past this way so when people complain 
that we're revising history, it's because we're revising it because it was wrong, <laughs> right? Based on the, this yeah, evidence. It was just a, yeah, yeah. Well, and we also have to understand, and this is why this Hartman book is so good. I think he did a, a tremendous job uh, really going back and finding the motivations here. And the political origin of the Second Amendment wasn't just about slave patrols. There was also something very important that uh, Thomas Jefferson was concerned about, which was his distrust of standing armies. He was worried about the cost of a standing army, but mostly he was concerned that without an armed citizenry, a democratic nation could risk a military coup. And so politically, he was concerned that without this amendment to codify the slave patrols into law, Southern states with heavy concentrations of enslaved Africans wouldn't ratify the constitution with, you know, um, so it was still all about white supremacy and white power that it was even in the constitution, <laughs> no matter how you slice it. And so the second amendment granted, because remember we said the 14th amendment wasn't passed until like 1868. So for almost a hundred years, the Second Amendment granted white men the power to subjugate African enslaved persons with firearms. And these militias were not officially part of the government, but they wielded the power of life and death. And they were delegated by the state governments to individual citizens. And this is really important to understand that slave patrols had been authorized by laws passed by the states, but they were carried out by loosely organized, completely unaccountable groups of white men. And it's hard to even imagine the impunity with which they operated in those days. Nobody was looking over their shoulder. They didn't have body cameras, you know, <laughs> um, enslaved people were considered property. They could be killed at will. Um, the worst that might happen to a militiaman who wrongly shot an enslaved person is that he might have to pay the enslaver some monetary damages. Think about that. Yeah, I know. It's it's horrifying. Think about it. It is totalitarianism for the for you know the enslaved people for African Americans at the time. Pure, unadulterated totalitarianism at the level of what you would see in Nazi Germany. I mean, there's, there's no there's no other way of putting it that way. Um, Plantations are gulags. They're, they're, they're fucking gulags. I mean, come on. Who's kidding who here? And for many, the fact that, that America was and in some ways still is clearly a white nationalist nation, it's just invisible. They don't see it. They don't want to see it. Uh, it's like fish. You know, a fish takes the ocean for granted. It doesn't know it's there. It doesn't consider the water, but it's there. Uh, this outright populist movement that has emerged from the shadows of, uh, from the past you know, has has brought this legacy up and shed, sh shed some light on it. So some people are seeing it now. The denial is wavering to some extent for some people. More coming to realize that this is this is a part of our legacy. But at the same time, from the outright believers, it's all about white grievance, feeding a white power movement. Right? Mm -hmm. They deny it to the extent where they feel uh, they they have they feel uh, victimized by it that they believe themselves to be victims of this false narrative, right? Then, and they are the ones that are under assault. It's white people under assault. It's Christianity under assault. It's men under assault. So all the sociology, all the anthropology, all the geography, science that proves different is simply dismissed and attacked. And again, this is why I wore the t-shirt, right? Um, the fact yeah. that Republicans squash gun violence research just, you know, and climate change and so on just fits into that mold very, very smoothly, right? If you think about it, it's all the same cacophony of denial noise. 
Yeah. Well, and I want, and, and it just, it's, it seems to morph and, and metastasize like a cancer endlessly into, you know, different, just fallacious arguments that are based on other fallacious arguments. And I want to address one of those that we hear all the time from libertarians and various other second, second amendment proponents that somehow citizens should have the right to bear arms against the government to act as a check and balance on tyranny. They think that's actually why the second amendment was there, which is, is, is nonsense. Um, what Jefferson was arguing was not that any and all citizens should have the right to mount a rebellion against the government. He was arguing for what Hartman calls a Switzerland style citizen militia that was well regulated by states as a check and balance against a national standing army. So it's kind of a balance of power between states and the federal government, right? This is quite different from the preposterous claim that citizens should quote, water the liberty tree with the blood of tyrants. I mean, that's a, this is this thing that you hear constantly from these guys who are like the, you have the Gazan flag flying or Confederate flag or whatever. You know, we got to water the liberty tree with the blood of tyrants. No, <laughs> Jefferson was not for that. He was not in favor of insurrections just any old time anybody felt like it. He wanted the state militias to be able to fight for the government to protect democracy itself from military coups. This is super yeah, important. Is. Now, look. I have no illusions about these militias. Okay. Jefferson was an enslaver himself and the militias were about slave patrols, but he really did think bigger toward the protection of democracy when he considered the role of militias. And you've got to grant Jefferson some small credit in that regard, but other enslavers who were his contemporaries like James Monroe, George Mason, Patrick Henry were much more direct. They feared that the U S Congress would try to act against state slave patrols. And it was their language that ended up as a second amendment. Originally the text read, quote, a well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, close quote. Now, to placate the enslavers' concerns, James Madison changed the word country to state, thereby preserving states' rights to conduct slave patrols. So this is how the Second Amendment ended up, which is its current form, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. Hartman reflects that little did Madison, Jefferson, or Henry realize that one day in the future, weapons manufacturing corporations, newly defined as persons by a dysfunctional Supreme Court, would use his slave patrol militia amendment to protect their, quote, right to manufacture and sell guns to individuals who would then use them to murder school children. One of the core problems with libertarianism is this inability to understand modernity itself. Uh, the Constitution was written in a different age, a far more simpler time. There were like a handful of jobs people did back then. Most were farmers, 95% or something. Today, there are thousands of different kinds of unique jobs that require specific knowledge and skills. As one example is a complexity. The level of complexity has increased many orders of magnitude since then. And yet they still want to run a society like this, like it was a few centuries ago. It's very childlike in some ways, right? It's a kind of an imaginary thing. It can't, it can't possibly happen. It's just, it, it, it won't work. And it's the same with this question about the Second Amendment. I think it served a different time, one that libertarians romanticize quite a bit. They do not see, like, all the stuff about, you know, the, the Second Amendment really only being for white, white rich men, really. Um, and... Um, mm -hmm. They don't even see that. They can't even imagine that. It's just beyond the, the, the scope to see it that way. Um, they don't understand all the historical descriptions we're talking about here, about slavery and indigenous people and so forth. It just doesn't fit that romanticized version of things. 
the gun issue serves as a way to maintain their white male Christian or whatever fantasies about our past and about mm-hmm. society today. Uh, owning guns freely is a kind of like a link to this imagined past and a denial of the present and that we are a very different world. Gun regulations attack their core beliefs this way. So it's not just about the gun itself, but it, it really leads into all of this ideology. So, but anyway, we can argue about the original legal intent of the Second Amendment. It's been done and overdone, and people are still arguing about it. It was one thing, and then it was a few decades ago, it became another. It, it was a new interpretation by the right, by, by the Supreme Court. Uh, and it's a full-scale sham. The Heller right. decision. It's a, I think the Heller decision yes, is what yes, you're talking exactly. about. It's a full-scale sham, and a lot of uh, scholars of the Constitution will tell you that. Um, we all know it, really. It's a sham. But even if it were true, we don't live in the 18th century any longer. We need to serve society today. No. And it's very different, right? Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if, if any old garden variety libertarian, okay, who's thinking about the past and romanticizing and fetishizing the past, and they're thinking about, you know, they see themselves holding the gun. They don't see themselves in a black enslaved person who was on the other end of that gun. They just don't see it. They don't. See. So this is how, you know, this is a white supremacist ideology because they do not see themselves as being the ones who the guns are pointed right. at. And, you know, so, um, all right. Well, in his book, Tom Hartman goes much further in elaborating how America came into its current gun stalemate. And it was in no small part down to various mythologies involving the supremacy of the gun. It didn't hurt that by the end of the Civil War, Samuel Colt had perfected the mass production of precision guns. And he enjoyed the legendary status during the 19th century of an inventor slash capitalist, kind of on the level of Aiken Edison or a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, right? There was this constant embellishing of stories, uh, you know, about these, these uh, weapons entrepreneurs and also about cow Boys and outlaws, which began as sort of these sordid tales of former enslavers and confederates and their sociopathic and criminal behavior. And they eventually were elevated through theater and film to sort of legends, you know, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, you know, it goes on and on, right? These were small characters. They didn't have a huge uh, role and yet they were elevated to these legends. And now so much of gun culture is based on these guys, right? So the other thing is that various American intellectuals also kind of applied social Darwinism to Native Americans, claiming that they were inferior and deserved their fate. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, I, I mean, you see how high this, this, these misconceptions reached. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is, is considered a hero by a lot of people. And um, <laughs> let's see if you still think he's a hero after I read you this following quote. Mind you, this was the 26th president of the United States. He said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but I believe nine out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. The most vicious cowboy has more moral principle than the average Indian. End quote. Now that's just savage. Savage. Okay. Those words came from a president of the United States. Yeah. No. So we know that other American presidents from Woodrow Wilson to Andrew Jackson were incredibly racist toward non-whites, even openly embracing eugenics uh, in the early 20th century to such an extent that Hitler's Germany literally took its cues from American eugenics propaganda. This is a topic for a whole other show, um, but the documentation is there and it's extensive. Yeah. Harvard was the center of eugenics research in the world in the t- turn of the century, 20th century, Harvard University. 
Harvard yeah. University. Yeah, shameful. So here we are, Sean. We're describing this path so many people simply do not want to hear. We are the troublemakers. <laughs> we are the haters. We're the traitors to, the, to these people, right? Uh, at best, they, at best, they think we're just deranged and mentally ill. We hate each other. We hate ourselves. We hate America and all that stuff, right? Poor us. <laughs> but nothing could be further from the truth. And I want to restate yeah. that. Um, we are devoted to this country and, and to people in this country. We are. We, this is why we do this show. Uh, we want to make it better for those who live here. Um, if we do not face our demons, they will devour us. They are devouring us. We are seeing it happen. Uh, we must bear the truth about racism, about in the indigenous history, about all the bigotries that keep us enslaved to suffering and injustices, like our children dying in their schoolrooms from, you know, AR-15 gunshot wounds. I mean... I honestly think this issue of gun violence will not be solved anytime soon. I don't think it's going to be solved. If Democrats somehow succeed in changing some laws for the better, it will not matter much in the short run. It could potentially aggravate the problem. In the very words of the hardcore people who really love their guns, they don't want to see any laws. Gun restrictions to them are a declaration of war in their own words. So the only hope for us, the only hope for us, for the rest of America, which is the great majority of America, by the way, right? most of us, is to be willing to heal from the past. And to do that, we have to accept the past. We have to accept who we are as a nation, as a people. And then perhaps at that point, Congress would change and pass meaningful reform. Well on guns and all of the related things we're talking about here in the show and, and we've talked about in the past complacency and you've said this before sean complacency is our biggest enemy not this small but powerful minority holding us all hostage on this issue and many other i i, I agree and that's what we're kind of coming to in in um as we as we finish out this episode we're coming to the point that you know we are really at a stalemate it's probably not going to change and i said it in the beginning as well um, but what that forces us to do, it forces us to take the time, take the long view of history. We have to, we, we have, because those children who died in that school were, you know, started being killed a couple of hundred years ago because of the second amendment. Like this is a, this is, this is a long row of dominoes and it hasn't stopped still falling. And until we sort of come to terms with that history and interrupt that chain of falling dominoes, you know, there's nothing that's going to stop the, the, the legislative stalemate is part and parcel of white supremacy and of, uh, of the victimization of the hierarchy that we always talk about uh, a victim victimization of women and children. Okay. Um, now I want to talk about this inflection point, which was the murder of Abraham Lincoln with a gun, a single gunshot, ended reconstruction. Okay. The civil war, the biggest sort of event that's happened, that's threatened our nation. Um, the resolution of it was reconstruction and reconstruction only lasted barely 11 years. And before it even got started, uh, the president who brought that episode to a close was shot and immediately, uh, Andrew Johnson and everybody else uh, who w followed him tried to undo what he did. And uh, we're right back. We're right back there. We're right back where we were. Okay. So after the Civil War, 
we had plenty of black soldiers who fought on the Union side. They were brave. Uh, those regiments were legendary because they were fighting for their own freedom. Right? Think, think about it. Um, during Reconstruction, the first official police departments were created in the South. And those, of course, included black freed policemen. And for the first time in history, black people were using guns legally during peacetime as official gov government representatives to protect the public. And there were other black men, particularly former soldiers who had like, I'm holding on to this gun. I'm keeping it. <laughs> and that didn't sit well with white Southerners. They did not like armed black men. Uh, and so they immediately set, set about passing black codes and disarming these black men. And the Congress immediately invalidated those black codes. But uh, as Reconstruction collapsed, just over a decade after the Civil War, Union troops left and there was nobody to protect these these black men. So the South regressed immediately to its former ways. States formed numerous posses to confiscate weapons and other property from black freedmen. And they committed untold acts of murder, theft and terrorism. And these posses later became the Ku Klux Klan. So all this centuries old history might not seem to have that much relevance to mass shootings in 2022, but it absolutely does. We have to look at Republican gun policy being passed in red states as a reflection of this history directly. Uh, Hartman suggests that open carry laws or constitutional carry, as they like to call them, are the new Ku Klux Klan white hood. And because what's being said, we got to think, what is the statement that's being made when a, when a white man brandishes his loaded gun in public? It's clearly a threat as well as a promise to follow through with violence and let's unpack what it's saying. I mean, it's saying I don't trust the police for my safety and I don't submit to the government's authority. Uh, push me too far and I'm willing to create a hostage situation. I'll take your life. I'll take a cop's life. Even if I die or go to jail in the process, I'm the judge. I'm the jury. I'm the executioner. And no matter how much they deny it, there is an implicit racial component to open carry by white men. Because if you're a black person or an illegal or a woman, they are saying, don't fuck with me because I will kill you. Know your place. Um, if I come into your business establishment, I don't have to abide by your rules. How far will I go? Fuck around with me and find out. I will use my violence to impose my will on anyone I deem a threat to me or unworthy of humane treatment. I don't accept the norms of civilization. That is what that gun says. It, you know, it doesn't even have to open their mouth. And that's that gun already says all of those things. And some people might question my emphasis on race. I, it's this is the this is the big uh, shadow boogeyman of America is this idea is is this idea uh, because clearly there are non-whites who openly carry guns. We've all seen the pictures. This is not just a white and dude women, thing, yeah. but we've also seen. Yeah. And women too. Yeah, of course. I mean, the second amendment does now cover everybody because right. of the 14th amendment and because of the 20th amendment. Right. Um, but to ask yourself why the NRA failed to come to the defense of Philando Castile, who was shot and killed by police uh, in 2016, even though he had a concealed carry permit, it should have been an open and shut wrongful death case. And the NRA should have raised hell about that. And they didn't. The officer was acquitted. The gun rights groups were all completely silent about it. I mean, he was doing what he was supposed to do. He had a concealed carry permit and, you know, they didn't stick up for him. So they all know which side of the donut the sugar is on when it comes to that. Uh, the cop's always going to win. So let's talk more about open carry, though. The problem with these laws is they make it so that cops can't preemptively stop anyone from carrying a loaded weapon in public. It's a matter of seconds for someone to draw and fire their gun. I mean, it's just like this. Whoop. Now you can commit a mass shooting. All right. So you can turn yourself from a law abiding citizen exercising your Second Amendment rights into the latest mass shooter in about 10 seconds flat. And this is especially true for the open carry of rifles, 
How do you know if that guy at Starbucks with the AR-15 over his shoulder is just getting a cup of coffee or if he's about to go off and murder everyone in the place? um, Sean, only three nations still have in their constitution the rights to bear arms. There were like 12 or so, but most of them rescinded it because of mass shootings, (laughs) literally. Uh, Like um, the U.S., Mm -hmm. Guatemala, and Mexico are the only ones. And the U.S. US is the only country without any restrictions on gun ownership in its constitution. There are restrictions in laws outside the constitution, but not in the constitution. Open carry is an extension of this fact, you know, and the very idea of people being able to be openly armed in public is really an anathema for almost all of humanity. All except 30 or so U.S. states, basically. And when I think... Yeah. What yep. I think a lot of people don't realize is how extreme of a policy this is. Even in the Wild West, even extreme. in the Wild West, there were laws to prevent people from having a gun in public, right? You know that most famous gunfight of all in Tombstone, Arizona with White Earp and Billy Holiday, and they met those other cowboys on <laughs> Fremont Street in the early afternoon, they had the shootout. You know what the whole thing was about? They were trying to enforce gun laws. <laughs> they didn't want anyone to carry a gun in town. And, uh, and that's, that's why they had the right. shootout, right? Because it was a law. Uh, and this is in the most wild of the Wild West. You know, so open carry yeah. is really taking it to a real extreme that people don't realize. And they've normalized it. They've normalized it so people say, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. Like, what, what of it? It's just, a, you know, but it is a huge deal in terms of history and in terms of all of the humanity. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it can, I can't see, like, can you see a sort of Star Trek scenario where everybody's just armed all the time? I mean, it's just like, you know, you have to be a Federation officer to carry a phaser, right? I mean, you just can't walk around armed, right? So, um, okay, well, let's talk about who is committing these mass shootings. And this is obvious. I mean, we have to say it, though. Um, it's men, and it's mostly white men. Uh, 97.7 of all mass shooters are male. 53% are white. 16% are black. 8.5 Latino. 6% Asian. 14% other or unknown race. And 2% Native American. Um, so roughly, we can say that the demographics of mass shooters parallels the demographics of the nation. Notably, Latinos, about 18% of the population only commit 8.5% of mass shootings. So they commit far fewer uh, compared to their percentage. Uh, but gender, yeah. what the fuck? Okay, we can look at female mass shooters as basically non-existent. This clear relationship between mass violence and masculinity. And that's what the fuck is wrong with American men. Um, we can look at all the standard issues people bring up about mental health, bullying, etc. That doesn't explain this incredible gender imbalance. You would think that men and women suffer mental health problems, bullying, and disappointment you know, anger right. at similar rates. Girls could be incredibly mean to each other in high school. Girls and women have just as easy access to guns, yet we almost never see girls engaging in this behavior. So let's focus on the specific profile, though, of the young men who commit these shootings. There's an article in Politico recently that does just that, and I'll link to it in the show notes. There's a gun violence researcher. Her name is Jillian Peterson, and she says, quote, early childhood trauma seems to be the foundation, whether violence in the home, sexual assault, parental suicides, or extreme bullying. Then you see the build toward hopelessness, despair, isolation, self-loathing, oftentimes rejection from peers. That turns into a really identifiable crisis point where they're acting differently. 
Sometimes they have a previous suicide attempt. What's different from traditional suicide is that the self-hate turns against a group. They start asking themselves, whose fault is this? Is it a racial group or women or a religious group? Or is it my classmates? The hate turns outward. This is also the quest for fame and notoriety, end quote. So later in the interview, Peterson emphasizes that mass shootings have to be looked at primarily as suicides planned to be the shooter's final act. So there's desperation there, but also the core of it has to be this boiling, burning desire for revenge that drives these young men. I mean, think of what children represent to us in our society. They're our very most precious thing. They're what you would sacrifice your own life for as a parent, and they're our highest value individuals. So killing them is a way of causing just unspeakable pain to all the authority figures in the shooter's life. And they know that. They know that. So, you know, it's teachers, it's parents taking the ultimate revenge in such a visceral way. It almost defies description. I mean, the, the shooter in Uvalde, Texas, he grinned at his teacher before he shot her. And he said, good night. You know, in that moment, you can only imagine this, the, how this coward felt the rush of all this power he'd been denied his entire short life by authority figures, particularly women. But power to do what? murder an unarmed woman at point blank range. It just defies description and it undermines any concept of manhood that, you know, so who knows what kind of trauma sparks that, that hatred and to, to commit that kind of atrocity. I mean, it just, I don't know. It's, it's all very horrible to contemplate these, you know, bl blowing these little kids bodies apart one by one, but we have to face this reality because even this kind of monstrous sociopathic act, it's, it's a part of the human story. I mean, I just sometimes I feel like I need help understanding. Yeah, me this, too. Joe. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's hard to understand. I can uh, I, I've read a little bit about it, and just from my own experience, I mean, clearly young adult males are unique among all other subgroups for being impulsive and reckless more than <laughs> any other group. They are far more prone mm -hmm. to violence. Uh, this the leading cause of death for young men are fights, accidents, driving too fast, that kind of thing. Uh, why is this the case? Perhaps it's biological, mm -hmm. perhaps it's cultural, a measure of both. There's a lot of research about how the brain of, of this cohort, you know, young men, is not fully developed when it comes to the ability to self-regulate behavior. There are studies that show that the prefrontal cortex, which is how we humans understand consequences and control impulses, right, doesn't fully develop until the age of 25. So this destructive behavior is also augmented, though, we're talking about young men, by a kind of performance of young masculinity. And, and they expected a cultural expectation to act out this way. It's expected to be impulsive and to, and to be more violent and aggressive. Um, and what's really important here, Sean, more than anything else, is that smart societies figure out how to mitigate this <laughs> because it is a part of who we are uh, as a people. And so you mitigate it with education, with yeah. activities, sports, laws, and other ways, you know, like one is not to make guns so fucking available because young men are really impulsive and they will act out on this stuff. Yeah. I mean, Maybe not to maybe not to young men, and I think I like like that's that's a very great point. And this, you know, one of the things that has been being discussed is raising the age at which you can buy a firearm, and I think that's a very good idea, particularly in light of what you said about the the, the neocortex not being fully developed uh, until age of twenty five, right? I mean, it's like or prefrontal cortex. Um, 
that's important. <laughs> we don't want people who don't have developed brains having the ability to, you know, to commit this kind of mass slaughter. But when we focus on trying to understand why this isn't happening, we have to look at the elephant in the room, which is the GOP <laughs> elephant. Okay. Uh, these shootings just don't happen in other countries. Other countries have the same childhood trauma. Other nations have alienated young men. They have violent video games. They have violent films, angry, suggestive music. They, other nations don't pray in their schools. Uh, other nations have experienced loss of social cohesion due to political and ethnic and religious strife. Uh, other nations have kids who are taking drugs. Other nations certainly have mental health problems. I mean, how is it that somehow all of these people who are in denial about this also just pretend that other nations don't struggle with these same issues. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, they don't have these mass shootings. Shouldn't that just end this discussion right then and there that other, they all have these other problems. They don't have mass shootings and they don't have the guns. Um, I'm not going to go through one more time because you already kind of covered it that, and it just couldn't be more obvious. More guns equals more gun crime, more suicides, more mass shootings, more homicides, more gang violence. It's just so fucking obvious. And there's only one reason why nobody wants to acknowledge it. And that is what we talked about earlier. The nation was founded on violence and white supremacy. And people just love the feeling of power they get from their guns. To admit the problem is to admit the whole problem of white supremacy and history and everything else. Um, once the Sandy Hook massacre happened and we didn't change our approach, we accepted that this was going to be the price of widespread firearms ownership, the regular mass shooting of civilians and children. And that's when the debate was effectively over. Um, nothing since then has moved the needle, not scores of people dying in Las Vegas, not the racist murders of a dozen black people at a grocery store and not even yet another mass shooting of children. So, um, I don't know, Joe, help me out here. <laughs> well, we can talk forever about this. Uh, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of history. It's a lot of complexity to be sure. But on this issue, there's one thing which is clear as day that we've mentioned over and over again on the show, no matter everything else, the easy availability of guns is the linchpin here. It's the linchpin. That's where any sane society mm -hmm. should focus to, to, lim to minimize the availability of guns, despite all the other you know, dimensions to this issue, which there are. But the, 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 the fact that there are so many guns is what makes the problem so much more severe in this nation. Uh, what else is there to say? Why have the political leaders failed to make a difference? It, true, it, this true, is as true, much of a yeah. cliche as thoughts and prayers. Yeah. You know, they're, they're bought off. Of course, they have a stranglehold on the Republican party through political contributions and lobbying cash. It's not just the NRA. Um, the NRA is kind of on the down swing. They've had a lot of scandals and legal troubles, but there are even more extremist organizations in 2022 pushing for even looser gun laws. And the, the National Association for Gun Rights, the Gun Owners of America, the American Firearms Association, they're pushing for the abolishment of all gun laws, period. Uh, and this is just unsustainable from a civil society standpoint. I mean, the more we repeal or loosen these laws, the worse the carnage is going to become. How much worse can it get? Well, apparently a lot. Um, not a day goes by in the U.S. without at least one mass shooting happening somewhere. As I've been writing the outline for the show, 
I mean, from the time I started to the time I finished writing the outline, there were like a dozen more mass shootings. Okay. It's pure warfare. And, and in order to make it stop, we're going to have to take on not only one of the most powerful lobbies in American history, we're going to have to face the entire beast of white male supremacy that's infected our nation since its founding. And I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. This horse is very much alive. Every time there's another firearms atrocity, we find out just how alive it is as Republican politicians like Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott, they don't hesitate to immediately politicize the issue in the wrong direction, preemptively tweeting and getting on all the talk shows bellowing that we're going to Democrats are going to use this tragedy to take away constitutional rights from Americans. So they're not concerned about the atrocity itself. They're not concerned about the dead children. The fix is in against tightening any gun laws and Later, they're going to trot out all the old sawhorses about securing our schools and arming teachers and fixing mental health and getting God back in schools and all that stuff. They will use any deflection they have to use because they're deathly afraid that at some point Americans will come to their senses and will galvanize and recognize that widespread gun ownership can never be made safe. The entire pretext of arming citizens for self-defense is a lie. Um but guns aren't about self-defense. They never have been. If they were, our gun laws would be geared toward controlling the most dangerous weapons and ensuring they didn't get into the wrong hands. But they don't want that either. Uh, powerful weapons of war being carried openly and flaunted in public are a fetish and a totem. And in spite of overwhelming popular support for things like background checks and red flag laws and these kind of things, Republicans have simply turned gun regulation into a third rail. Touch it and you're dead. You're a rhino, Republican in name only, and you'll be literally kicked out of the party. And I have to emphasize how fraught and dangerous this is, even for Republican politicians who want to do the right thing. And there are a few of them who do exist. Uh, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger, he's one. After the 2017 Las Vegas concert shooting, he called for a ban on bump stocks, which allowed semi-automatic weapons to be fired in full auto mode. And for voting to ban those, Adam Kinzinger was punished by the NRA changing his rating from A to F. Uh, and in, <laughs> I know, he, he, he fired back. He called the NRA a grifting scam and he won re-election because of it. But since then, he did something even worse to them, which is he voted to impeach Trump after January 6th. And that put like a total target on his back. And eventually, you know, Kinsinger is not running again. And that has actually made him safe to speak his conscience, which he recently did. A Republican calling for an outright ban on AR-15 style weapons is pretty, that's pretty big. Uh, same thing with Chris Jacobs, New York Congressman Chris Jacobs. He had a perfect rating from the NRA, and I think the Buffalo ma massacre happened in his district, and that's kind of inconvenient if you're a congressman, right? And so he came out for an assault weapons ban and a ban on high-capacity magazines, and within seven days, his political career was over. He was attacked by Donald Trump Jr. directly, and he lost all of his endorsements. Uh, he was they they're going to primary him, and you know <laughs> he he just within like a week announced that he wasn't running for reelection. Uh, he was heckled in public, and his personal cell phone has been posted online, and that's the price in Trump's America for doing the right thing. Yeah. This is the issue that's even like more powerful than like even abortion. Like if you break rank on this issue. You're done. You're done in the Republican Party. They will attack you and they will make sure you don't get reelected. And they usually, you know, get the job done. Um, it's their modus operandi. They want to keep the party unified under this banner. 
Um, and but you know what? I'm done making predictions, honestly, on this issue. I've said it in the past, you know, I think that things are changing, you know, that there's one massacre is so bad that people have to wake up. You know, it's like you saw, you see for the first few days, first week, even sometimes people are, you know, aroused by it. They're, they're angered and so forth, but then it just dies down. So I've been wrong too many times to make any more predictions, except to say that there will, I would say there will be a turning point. At some point, it will happen. I just don't know when. Uh, I do hope that that's the case. I think so. I do think it's possible that we do make progress on this issue at some point. I'm just done holding my breath about it. Um, look, this is going to be something that must happen across the board. We aren't suddenly going to solve this problem of, of gun violence and not solve other issues of just social justice, of human safety and so forth. Whether it's the environment or healthcare or whatnot, it's really all one package. We either care about public health, public welfare, we care about people, or we don't as a society. We're either going to override the power of the GOP cult that exists now, or we're not. And so to change the, to change the gun laws right. in a meaningful way, what we need is we need greater change. We need to move away from this era of the alt-right. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is what it comes down to. I think you're right. It, this, this issue is connected to everything else. And it's connected to sort of this last, it's either a last gasp of, of, of white male power, or it's, we're going to see fascism, permanent fascism, because in a, in a modern uh, police state, you know, it's very hard to dislodge. You look at modern police states like Russia and China, and once they get into place, I mean, they're, they're very hard to challenge. So I, I have a couple more points I want to cover before we wrap up. And I, I, I think it really is important to understand the philosophical differences between gun owners in safe and sane countries who don't experience our levels of gun violence and the gun fetishists in the United States who won't even be swayed from their position by the mass murder of children. And the difference is, is that other countries treat personal firearms ownership as a privilege rather than a right. You already mentioned that, Joe, that we're one of only three nations that has it in our constitution. And that difference is really important. Uh, we need to understand the essence of the relationship between citizens, government, and society. And there's one shift that's happened over the past 50 years is that we don't any longer have a real sense of shared citizenship or patriotism in the United States. I mean, in some ways, that's a good thing because we're facing our problems. But in other ways, it's a very, very bad thing because it destroys social cohesion. And to illustrate what I'm talking about, we have to go back to a time before Fox News, before President Obama, before even Ronald Reagan to the years after World War II, when it really seemed that the United States was a shining city on a hill. It, it was a time that, that America really could claim that it was exceptional because we were. We were the leading military power. We pr produced fully half of the world's GDP. Um, we had civic pride. And that was a time if there was a national triumph or tragedy of any sort, it was something that we could all share. It was a time when saying the Pledge of Allegiance didn't feel hollow and hypocritical. And if you're white and male, it's easy to wax nostalgic for those post-war years because most of the conflict that now roils our nation was deeply buried under mountains of white male privilege. Women could not get a credit card. Marital rape was legal in all 50 states. Interracial marriage was rare and mostly unthinkable. Gay and transgender people were fully in the closet, and there were separate white and colored facilities. 
the Civil and Voting Rights Act acts hadn't been passed, and the black vote was routinely suppressed with poll taxes and unfair quizzes. Even though lynchings have been on the decline since the early 20th century, they have still occurred with regularity almost right up to the present day. So my point here is that, of course, the American unity under white male patriotism of the post-war years was a sham, an illusion, but it still allowed the country to have a form of social cohesion that's now been lost. And when President Kennedy was shot or Robert Kennedy, everyone mourned together, whether you agreed with them or not. Uh, the Challenger disaster, 9-11, pulled the country together. The same cannot be said for the assassination of Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or the police True. murders of George Floyd and countless other black men. Very different response to those tragedies. Okay. And this is what I'm getting at. So after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the United States has never been the same. The late 1960s tumult in the streets was just the opening act. Johnson's famous quote that Democrats had lost the South for the generation, for a generation might have been the understatement of the 20th century because <laughs> he did, he underestimated the backlash and a substantial portion of white Americans has never accepted racial equality, have never stopped trying to roll it back by undemocratic means. And 2008 was a watershed moment in this process, because when they saw President Obama elected by a large majority, they decided that if they couldn't prevail democratically, they would instead burn the country to the ground and rule over the ashes. And that's what's happening. Um, to understand what's happened, we have to revisit the first grievous post-Civil Rights Act blow against equality, which was the sabotage of the Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA's defeat was an effort led almost entirely by conservative women, I might add. Ronald Reagan rode the coattails of that defeat into the White House and thus began Republicans' 40-year effort to delegitimize the U.S. government. From the bully pulpit of the presidency, Reagan denounced his own government in vicious terms. It's the craziest thing I'd ever seen when I was younger, you know, watching Reagan do this, a supposedly flag-waving American patriot talking about getting government off our backs. And this only makes sense against the backdrop of expanded civil rights. And what Reagan was doing there is effectively the same thing that Trump did in 2020 by declaring the election of Joe Biden illegitimate. It may seem different, but not the subtext, which is a clear and resounding rejection of official U.S. government support for universal civil rights. Reagan was the first president who divided our country, country culturally into two Americas. The first was the, quote, real America, which was the America of tradition and white male supremacy and apple pie and small towns and Memorial Day parades. The second America was the government's America, which was the America of cities and diversity and labor unions and official inclusion and equality for women and people of color. Because aside from Reagan's heavy-handed union busting and resource giveaways to large corporations, deregulation was primarily about undermining what Steve Bannon later called the administrative state. And what's the job of the administrative state? Collecting taxes that would end up happening, ha helping poor people and brown people and black people and enforcing regulations, protecting things like the environment and civil rights. Now, Reagan is interesting because he's a paradoxical figure, because even though he was the first American anti-government president, two incidents with him involving guns stand out. The first is that as governor of California, he had signed a gun control bill that greatly expanded the power of California's government, which, according to the Hartman book, mainly targeted black gun ownership. And the second is that Reagan was shot by an assassin, John Hinckley. Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, was also shot and became mentally disabled due to brain damage. The assassination attempt led to the passage of one of the largest federal gun control efforts in modern times, the Brady Bill, 
which required background checks and five-day waiting periods on all gun purchases nationwide. With the advent of computerized background checks, the Brady Bill five-day waiting period is no longer in effect. Well, you know, I want to bring it back out again and beyond just America. Humanity has reached a limit on what it can deny. Uh, we can no longer fake it, ignore it, forget it. We have a destructive side, all of humanity does, that keeps rearing its head at the worst moments. And that's particularly true of America because as the world superpower for a century, we were really, we help organize this world. We help develop modernity and, and globalization and global capital and all that stuff. And we are a nation of immense power and influence. And, you know, but we're also a nation filled with contradictions. And this is where the rubber meets the road. We have a responsibility now to turn, to own up, uh, to own up from our mistakes, our history, and our atrocities, and then use that to move forward as a world, not just as a country. So America is suffering a lot more now in part because we were the hegemon of the world. And that gave us a lot of hubris that we didn't have to solve these problems, I think. Now, here's where I look at the good traditions that come out of the Enlightenment age. We need to reinvigorate and modernize the philosophies about citizenship, about civic responsibility, and the public good. Uh, our greatest problems are all collective problems in the world. That's why I mean we, we have reached a limit of denial, right? They can only be solved by good policies and good citizenship that means that we have to face these problems and we have to face ourselves. The only way to bolster these things is to be truthful, to be open, to be honest about who we are, what it means to be human, what it means to be American, or what it means to be a people. This denial comes in the form of the denial that we are one nation and this fake separation that has you know been the republican platform basically since reagan which is that there's this divide between the government's america which is majoritarian rule uh, a bureaucracy that protects civil rights and then the anti-government real america which is represented by a shrinking minority of white men fox news and the second amendment entitlement to unlimited ownership and carrying of guns and you know gun rights activists many of whom let's be honest wish we could go back to the days of slave patrols they want white men to be the ones the only ones to have the guts um they're in a real bind with this whole gambit because they also know that expanding gun rights means that black and brown people will also own and carry their firearms in public but they've got a plan to deal with this just listen to Tucker Carlson's unrelenting attacks on Democrat cities as hotbeds of gangs and crime. In this narrative, it's not the guns pouring into these cities that makes them violent. Uh, no, sir. It's the fact that the cities are full of black and brown people who don't belong to the, quote, real America. In this twisted story, if black and brown people are the primary victims of rising urban gun crime, it's their own fault. No conservative ever talks about black and brown people's Second Amendment rights being exercised in cities. OK, they just don't. They only talk about the crime committed. And this is bullshit, but it's the next logical step for violent white supremacy. If you can't figure out a legal way to keep firearms out of the hands of people of color without also hurting whites, then make them pay a steep price in blood and blame them for the violence and chaos. It seems to be working like a charm. 
because real America, that is Trump's America, seems to have collectively decided that American cities are violent shitholes. So what do we do to combat this gun violence in America? I can tell you what I think needs to happen. And I think um, it's really going to be an unpleasant truth that until we break the Republican logjam, and I mean all of it, I mean, we have to reestablish fair elections. And until we do without gerrymandering, nothing's going to happen at all. They've got this in a lock. Uh, I mean, you can take it to the bank. Mass shootings are going to continue. There will be more of them and there will be higher body counts, especially if they're allowed to uh, loosen gun restrictions even more. And this is simple cause and effect. This is the plan. Uh, don't get this twisted. Republicans have always known exactly how to fix gun violence, but they don't want to. It serves their fear-driven political interests. They literally want this carnage. And I know that sounds hard to believe, but every time another mass shooting happens, gun sales go up even more, and it solidifies the Republican Party's political stranglehold of fear that they have over white men. If you still can't wrap your mind around how that works, then you just don't understand what the Republican Party stands for at this point. And just to underscore this, there's a new YouGov poll that just came out this past week, it was reported on CNN. It's appalling in its stark honesty about Republicans, where Republicans are on this. 44% of Republicans believe that, quote, mass shootings are something we have to accept as a part of a free society, end quote. They said this. There's a question on a survey. 44% answered yes. And this is why we haven't had any movement on gun regulation. It just doesn't get any clearer. This is the plan. The GOP has gone full death cult because this is what they want. You, you better start believing it because they certainly do. Um, here's what we could do if we had the guts and the power. And it's what would actually solve the problem. We'd move from a system of absolute entitlement to purchase any and all weapons to a system based on a demonstrated need to own a high-powered military-style weapon for the purpose of improving public safety. This really speaks to the well-regulated militia clause of the Second Amendment. And I just want to read this Facebook post that I made after the Buffalo okay. Massacre. It's no longer enough to discuss tightening laws covering the sale of new guns. There's already about 450 million firearms in private hands in the U.S., enough for at least 100 years of slaughters. The carnage will only begin to abate several years to a decade after we limit military-style weapons ownership to accountable people who are directly charged with maintaining public order. Sound like a militia? <laughs> that would limit these purchases to law enforcement professionals and a very select few others who can demonstrate a socially responsible reason for their firearms ownership. In terms of the Second Amendment, we would need to limit private citizens to pistols with small magazines of less than 10 rounds, bolt-action rifles, and shotguns. And we would limit the possession of ammunition to a few tens of rounds. That's it. That's the whole proposal. All other weapons, which have no other purpose than mass killing, would have to be turned in with a 12- to 24-month window during which a generous buyback program would provide strong incentives to the public. After that window closes, possession of a prohibited firearm would result in automatic long-term prison sentences. Sale of an illegal firearm would carry a mandatory life sentence. We could empty the jails of nonviolent drug offenders and fill them with wannabe mass murderers. Seriously. Sport and target shooting would be regulated separately, and participants could keep their weapons and ammunition in public lockers at or where they needed to use them. No more of this long distance or interstate transportation in automobiles. Enough. 
Above all, we need to keep guns and ammunition out of the hands of violent men. Red flag laws need to be given serious teeth. A single offense of domestic violence would result in a lifetime ban from being anywhere near any and all firearms, no exceptions. Even if we did these things, we'd still see many years to even decades of senseless gun violence until we cleared all of these tools of death out of people's basements and attics. We can't cleanse this poison from our nation overnight, but we can commit to start by starting and recognizing that this is what it will take. So in the final analysis, that's the end of my quote. In the final analysis, public safety really is all about regulating the guns. We'll never eliminate firearms completely, nor do we need to. We most desperately need to classify the most dangerous semi-automatic weapons of war as class three weapons that are not generally sold to the public. This is the same class under federal firearms law as automatic weapons. It's completely feasible to do this without violating the second amendment. But in order to get to a place where we could restrict the most dangerous weapons and implement a serious ban and buyback proposal, we need to get the ideas right. For once and for all, there's no special entitlement to guns for so-called real Americans, and the government's America is something that belongs to all of us, that protects all of us, and that we must protect in return. This is everything. Only a nation with strong social cohesion can ever protect the public interest. And protecting the public interest is the strongest rationale for limiting gun ownership. That's what Switzerland and Australia and Canada and the UK have that we don't have. They have enough social cohesion that my safety is also your safety. So there's no question about the importance of protecting public safety for everyone. And that boils down to enough people coming to the agreement that a strong government policy to strictly regulate guns and thereby make gun owners socially responsible isn't some tyrannical power grab to oppress white men. Because when someone says gun control will never work in America, what they really mean is come and take it. What they really mean is that many white men would rather die in a hail of bullets than ever accept a government that protects universal civil rights and forces them to share power with anyone. That's a problem for all of us. You have any final thoughts, Joe? I think the, just speak on this issue. Don't be completely, you know, broken by it. I was for a while. I stopped speaking about it. I think that was wrong. And I'm not speaking about it again. And I think everyone should. We should keep at it, keep working, keep talking, and have some hope on it, even though it does seem fairly hopeless right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and original theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Okay,